Canto 20 brings us to, I think, one of the most disputed or, if not actually disputed, um, kind of least well understood cantos of the whole Divine Comedy, certainly of the Inferno. And it's appropriate to begin in a way with that remark because from the get-go it too begins in an odd way. Dante says, I must now turn strange new sufferings into verse as I begin the 20th canto of this, the first part of three. Um, he is himself, as it were, commenting on what he's got to try to do. Um, he's naming his comedy uh, once more. He's also signalling that this is the first part to do with the damned, um, but half indirectly reminding us that there's going to become other there's going to come other parts as well. So we're to hold in mind, as it were, um, the purgatory and the paradise. Um, and I think this is my take on it. Um, this is my take on this canto. If you read the commentators, you'll find other interpretations. But this is where I'm at with it at the moment, because perhaps I should also say in parenthesis that the Divine Comedy is one of those texts that when you read at different times of life, it channels or transmits different things to you. I think it's very significant that Dante begins with this phrase that his task now is to turn strange new sufferings into verse. Because in a way, turning life's sufferings as well as, further down the line, life's hopes um, and fulfilment into verse, is Dante's, you might say, divine art. It's the way he tries to divine the truths. And he does that by reflecting on personal experience, um, those his inner life, um, midway through the point of his life, he finds himself having strayed from the path. And you know, this idea that this is a reflection upon his life thus far to rediscover the true path, or maybe to discover the path for the first time, which you can only do when you've got a certain amount of life behind you. He's bringing to his personal experience then, of course, his great poetic art. He deeply trusts words not just to create effects, not just to put across feelings, not just to capture moments, but to reveal truth itself, that words are this skill, um, this gift that human beings have that can take them way beyond um, uh, a, to a conscious experience, a conscious discernment of that which would otherwise lie beyond us without words. Um, they're not just signs, they're symbols. He's also very interested in the signs of the times, and this is going to become important in this canto, this extra element, because he reads the signs in terms of the politics, um, uh, the sort of secular signs around him, but he also is very interested in the heavenly signs, um, the signs which the astrologer would be interested in. Um, this is one of the big disputes in this canto, um, how much Dante follows um, the astrology that tries to predict future events as opposed to the kind of astrology which tries to read the, um, the energies, the impetuses, the kind of qualities of the present moment, um, the more sort of traditional sense of, of prophecy. Um, 
what might now be called a kind of um, archetypal astrology or looking at dispositions and character. It's not clear really how much Dante um, turns to reading the signs to see the future as much as to comment on the present. And remember that just in the last canto, he predicted that the Pope Boniface would end up in hell, even though in 1300, when the Divine Comedy is set, Boniface was still alive. So it seems that he could be pulled in that direction, at least in some measure. Mostly, though, he's interested, I think, in astrology as to do with dispositions and character. Um, we've already commented that his own sign was Gemini, um, and whatever else that might mean, he certainly has great trust in, as you might you might say, the kind of inner twin. Um, there's Dante the Pilgrim undergoing the journey of life, Dante the Poet, um, a bit like his kind of, um, his higher self, you might say, that tries to discern and make sense and put together. So he's a great reader of the signs. Um, and of course, he also trusts um, human will, human desire. When properly discerned, he trusts that that too can divine the path to life um, with all the struggle, with all the mistakes, with the, the real genuine risks that he's encountering now, particularly in the descent. So this first line, I must um, uh, tell of strange new sufferings and put them into verse. Um, in this moment, captures also his whole kind of vocation, his whole effort um, to divine the truth, um, to divine what's going on now for himself, for the world around him, and then offering that to us as we try to discern what's going on for us, for the world around us. But also this extra sense of um, a directionality too, um, where we can be headed um, if we do this work of divination ourselves, find the right path. He then tells us what he sees as he looks down now into the fourth Bolgia that they've encountered in Malabolge. And what he sees now truly shocks him uh, with not just the sort of shock of recognising the state of someone's soul, um, but the shock of seeing twisted and contorted bodies, um, really visceral, physical suffering in this um, canto. Because what he sees is people whose heads have been so turned around um, that they look back when they should be looking forward, that their beards fall down their backs when they're men, and that tears stream down their backs when they should be streaming down their chest in their suffering. These are figures who are condemned to walk forwards whilst looking backwards permanently. It's said that they move in slow lines like a litany procession. And he realises that this contrapasso um, is for those who have tried to look forward in life. Something has gone terribly wrong. And so now they're condemned to step forward, but never be able to see the future into which they're moving. Um, these are um, individuals who were themselves diviners in life. And they were people who tried to tell the truth, to try to read the signs, to try to use whatever means they had. Some of them were astrologers, some of them were augurs, um, some of them were prophets. Um, and the scene deeply shocks Dante. First of all, as it were, in the moment where he sees um, uh, their physical torture. Um, but then in the moment, I think when he recognises something of himself, 
and it said that he weeps and he half collapses. He has to lean against a jagged rock. Um, it's one of the moments which we haven't actually had for a little while um, when uh, Dante is nearly overwhelmed by the sight. Um, and in fact, um, he doesn't really keep his mind through this canto now, here on. Um, he is remains preoccupied. Um, you can think of him wrestling in his own mind to know what sense to make um, of these figures. Um, it's in such stark contrast to Canto 19, you know, where he was shocked and, and dumbstruck um, when he first saw um, Pope Nicholas um, inverted um, in, the, in the hole in the ground. Um, but then not only regains his voice, but gains a kind of authority to speak truth to power. And Virgil um, is delighted and congratulates him and holds him to his heart. Um, very quickly, this is all changed now. Dante is um, cut down um, with um, the new sights, the strange new sufferings that he's got to now wrestle with, got to turn into verse, um, make some sense of. Then he directs us, his readers, once more and says, Dear readers, if you want to gain benefit from this poem, then understand my tears. He's putting out a challenge to us, sharing his disquiet with us um, uh, to say that, you know, if you want to follow me on this descent, then you've got to wrestle with what this might mean within me. But of course, that means wrestling with what it might mean within yourself as well, within ourselves as well. Um, he's setting up a kind of resonance um, across the centuries. Um, one of the reasons, again, why the Divine Comedy can, can speak so much in such different ways, and that it is um, this intermediary um, speaking between our own truths and divine truths. Uh, Dante invites us to very actively turn on that sense of engagement with the poem in this canto. And then we're shocked, doubly so, because Virgil turns on Dante. Virgil chastises him. You know, maybe it's coming after the spiritual high point of the last canto, where um, although Dante began dumbstruck, he regained his voice and could speak truth to power, so much so that Virgil hugged him to his breast. Now Virgil sees Dante in this collapsed state once more, and he says, are you still um, just as foolish as everyone else. Do you not see, he says. Um, and Virgil then names at least what he sees as the trouble that these souls have fallen into that's led them to be caught in this deep ditch. It's that they try to bend the divine will to their own will. This is his take on divination, on divining. And if that were so, then that clearly is quite enough to put you in hell because trying to bend the divine will to your own will rather than align your will with the divine will the other way around is to cut yourself off from God, is in a way to make yourself divine, to try to bend the divine will to your own. Um, it's to not just lose sight of what the divine will might be like in itself, but is also to deliberately obstruct the effort to align your will with that divine will. And so take this path, um, which Dante and Virgil are trying to follow. So it's a very serious charge, quite enough to land you in Malabolge, um, which 
the implication is that if this is what Dante risks doing with his own divination, um, then he in, is indeed in deep trouble. Um, he too um, is quite right to be shocked, just not by the sight of the other souls, but by the deep existential trouble that might be sort of surging up within him that causes his near collapse. And then, as if to complicate things further, Virgil himself speaks out like a diviner, like someone who can see what's in front of him, can interpret the signs and the souls that march by. Um, he says, raise your eyes, see. He names and um, lists for Dante in his shock state some of the souls that they see before them, um, beneath them, um, in the pit. Um, they're standing on the bridge looking down. Um, he sees um, four classical diviners, um, soothsayers, augurs. Um, the one that really stands out for us now perhaps is Tiresias, um, the prophet. You remember his story that um, he was born a man, saw snakes coupling, um, and then became a woman, and then later saw the same snakes coupling again and was turned back into a man. Um, a strange start happenstance that um, led Jupiter and Juno to ask Tiresias who gets more pleasure out of making love um, and um, when Tiresias said women do Juno was furious because as it were her secret was out um, and so she blinded him but what's perhaps significant here and confusing now here is that Jupiter gives Tiresias a gift in kind of compensation and it's the gift of prophecy um, so it's not that um, the condemnation of divination, soothsaying, augur, ring is straightforward um, in this canto at all, um, as if just doing it is bad per se, because Dante's now reminded us that one of the souls here, Tiresias, was given this gift of prophecy by no less a figure than Jupiter. And of course, Dante is deeply involved in divination, and Virgil now is in the act of divining the souls that he sees before him and what they have done, what they've suffered. So we see these four souls marching by us. Um, there's then um, uh, a long exposition from Virgil about the founding of his own city, Mantua. Um, one of the diviners that they'd seen is actually um, the prophetess Manto. Um, and it's said that she settled on the spot that then became the city of Mantua. But what's really interesting about the tale that Virgil tells, and again, this is highly commentated upon um, when people try to understand this canto, um, is that he tells um, a rather naturalistic, this-worldly, you might say, account of his city and its founding. Um, it's very different from um, the kind of approach that he would have taken as a classical scholar, um, as, sorry, as a classical writer, um, where um, the standard practice was to um, divine the right place to settle a city, to use sorcery, to try to read the signs. Um, Virgil um, undercuts that um, now in the tale that he tells. He talks about uh, many waters coming together at various points that formed a natural barrier that made a, a good place to found the city. Um, and I think that partly what's going on here, again, this is sort of my interpretation, um, I feel very alert, partly because of what's happened in the previous cantos, to Virgil's own learning. Virgil himself too is changing through this second descent from, for him. 
Um, and I think that part of what's going on here, um, this is partly a literary comment, is that Virgil is now being given the voice of the vernacular. He's been given a voice much more like Dante's, in fact, um, that Dante uses in the Divine Comedy. Um, this is widely commentated upon. We've already noted that Dante's style can change very much from canto to canto, from a kind of lofty style, which was the traditional, it was called the tragic style, um, which Virgil would have used. Um, and then he can move to a much more vernacular, lowly, everyday, almost humdrum kind of style. Um, and of course, he wrote in the vernacular um, dialect of Florence. Um, and I think what this is saying is that Virgil himself is learning about comedy. He too is learning about how um, everyday life, signs, poetry um, can be woven in to lead to find the path that leads to um, the happy end, that leads to fulfillment. Um, so Virgil himself is having his divination process, you might say, um, uh, developed, amended even, um, in this canto as well, um, by the way that he tells the story of the founding of Mantua, which would have been so different from how he would have told it when he was alive. He ends his account with, again, a declaration, um, like a diviner of um, truth-telling, when he says, um, let no false tales adulterate the truth. Um, he's now seen it aright. And he turns back to Dante, but Dante's still caught up um, in his own um, discontent. Um, you know, again, this is a bit, this is a canto a bit like when he met the lovers right early on in the Inferno and was overwhelmed because it was so close to him too, the business of discerning love, or um, it's like when they went into the, the forest of the suicides, when again Dante too was dumbstruck, um, that sense, um, very different from love, um, but that sense was too close to him then again, um, it's still preoccupying him now. So Virgil continues, um, and he describes more, they're now 13th century um, astrologers, soothsayers, augurs, um, some of them very well known, um, for um, readers of the Divine Comedy from these British Isles. Um, one of them is a chap called Michael Scott, the clues in the name. Um, he was actually a very famous um, philosopher of Aristotle, of Islamic texts, and also wrote a lot about astrology. Now he's seen in this Bolger. And the canto draws to an end with Dante still feeling full of unease, and in fact, as we'll see, that preoccupation continues into the next canto. Um, but for now, it leaves us with the question of where we're at. Um, you know, I think at the very least, this is about saying, be careful when you get too wedded to your own truth. And because if you hold to it too fast, it actually is going to limit you. It's going to cut you off from the wider truth even as it purports to tell you what's true. Um, I think another reflection here is that um, when we declare our truths, um, in whatever way that might be, you know, maybe just to a friend or uh, maybe in a podcast, um, uh, in whatever way it might be, watch for that moment afterwards where you feel a bit deflated, a bit flat. Because I think that can be a sign that um, you've got caught up in the sort of false self side of you um, that 
in part is required to speak um, what you can see as true. You know, to be a poet like Dante, um, to, to speak out in any way requires all that you have to do it. Um, but again, drawing all that you are to yourself can leave you cut off in the end because it's quite easy to forget that that's got to channel a wider divine truth. It's got to be well connected to reality, to um, the truth of all things. And so that flatness is a sign to um, correct things, to, to rest back into the divine truth that you're trying to um, understand, to communicate, to share. Um, and then you feel the return of life, you feel um, uh, the fullness um, uh, present once more. Another possibility is to dedicate your efforts, whether it be in a small way, um, to offer it up to the divine, to offer it up for the good of the person, um, you know, for the well-being of all sentient beings, even as, as the Buddhists often put it. Um, that is an opening, reconnecting gesture. Dante himself, in this canto at least, doesn't do that. He's left with this deeply troubled sense of what he's seen. He's unable to call on his poetic gift. He's unable to discern, unable to read the signs, unable even to see forward as he and Virgil take the next steps in their descent.